Presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Here at our regular time. Isn't it nice to start at our regular time and not have to wait for the Red Sox to get over? And they had a Big win today, too, so, I mean, I could just imagine what it would be like if that game was tonight, watching them score 14 runs while we're sitting here waiting to go on the air. Hey, we love baseball, just not on Saturday nights, because we only get two hours each week to talk to you about the paranormal, and these are those two hours. We're here each and every Saturday night at some point in time, uh, generally at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, streaming live to the world on SpookySouthCoast.com and WBSM.com, and, of course, podcasting the entire world through iTunes and Every podcast program you can think of. I, mean, I actually, uh, I was talking with somebody uh, earlier this week about podcasting and about uh, how it's kind of taking over. You know, it seems like every mainstream radio station podcasts and, you know, that they'll put certain shows up uh, on, on their website as podcasts. Uh, WBSM doesn't really do it yet, but I'm sure that they will uh, somewhere down the line. And there's actually something coming up called PodCamp. At the end of October, it's going to take place in Boston. It's a, it's a big podcasting uh, festival, so we'll see if we can get WBSM down there so they can figure it all out and, and podcast all their shows. But for now, at least, we're we're on the Internet, so you can get us that way. But we invite you to join us live each week. So as Matt Moniz has done, our science advisor Matt Moniz is here in the studio after he was going to be out in the field tonight. Plans fell through, but I'm sure you'll be back out in the field soon. Yeah, very, very soon. You can tell he gets that itch after a while, Matt Costa. You know, uh, he, he just, you know, he's like, it's oh, antsy. yeah, I don't want to be in the studio with you two guys. I want to go out there and actually do some research. It's fun to sit here and talk about stuff, and you can learn a lot, but not as much as you can out there experiencing it firsthand. Well, I'm proud of you guys with the stuff you guys have been doing at Lizzie Borden. Uh, some of the stuff you guys have got, pretty impressive. Well, I mean, it helps when the, the house plays along, too. I mean, I, I think at this point, any, any schmuck could go in there with a tape recorder and, and come out with some evidence. Why don't you try that schmuck? <laughs> <laughs> Not just any schmuck, the silent assassin schmuck. How are you tonight, Matt Costa? I'm doing all right. Yeah, you know, and and this is a an interesting topic that we're going to have tonight is uh, is reincarnation. It is. It kind of tickled my fancy a little. Did it? it yeah. I was going to ask you: Is it something that you buy into? The whole reincarnation thing. Yeah. Um, here and there, but not in. Maybe not in this case. Here, here, here and know. there. That's like the whole basic. That's true. That's the whole basis of reincarnation. You're here, then you're there, then you're there. <laughs> well, Matt Moniz, you've done way more. I mean, we're going to talk to to our guest tonight, uh, author Richard Salva, and he'll give us more information about reincarnation. Something I haven't really done a lot of studying on, but I know you've read up on it, Matt Moniz. And well, what are you? What are your thoughts on reincarnation? Well, the reincarnation uh, mythos, if you want to use the term mythos, has been around with us from the beginning. It's actually one of the oldest belief systems that we have. Um, now, it's been carried on into modern tradition. There's been a, a lot of research that was actually been done on reincarnation. There are a whole host of books 
uh, Search for Bridie Murphy being one, mm -hmm. uh, a handful of others. I've worked with people that have had near-death experiences, and I've attended some of these past-life regressions that other people have gone through to see who they were in past lives. A lot of that is more parlor entertainment, but on some of the more serious sides of uh, some of the more in-depth um, regressions, some people really did pull out information that in some cases was verifiable, which makes you wonder. Well, I mean, like I said, I haven't really done a whole lot of research into reincarnation, but what I've heard about it over the years, it seems to me like when everybody starts to find out about their past life, um, through whatever means. I mean, usually it's they go to a psychic or medium, somebody who claims to be able to tell you who you were in a past life without the knowledge and, and the expertise that a, a, somebody like Richard Salva has. And they'll come out of there saying, huh, I used to be Cleopatra in my past life, and right. I used to be this, and I used to be that. Like, only so many people can have formerly been somebody Everybody's famous. Everybody's always famous when I'm in yeah, one of those. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, here's an interesting little factoid. The total number of people alive today equals the total number of people that have ever lived. In, in this room alone? We've... Well, no, just mathematically, that we're at a crux point of our evolution. And um, that's just the way the numbers are balancing right now? Basically. Now, getting back to what I was talking about earlier, actual past life regressions that were done professionally, and I mean seriously researched, these came from cases where people knew about their life beforehand, before being regressed, mm. and they went to these people. Yeah, you would have snippets of it would right. pop into your mind. Or, right. And a lot of times what happens, is, at least in what I've read, a lot of times what happens is people will think that they're essentially that they're going crazy, that, right. they, that they're living dual lives and that they have this other personality and they're not really realizing what it is that's going on. Right. There are several well-known cases. That's that's what I'm referring to. We get, it's also become a pop culture thing to go and, you know, use hypnosis to see, see just like what we were talking about. Yeah. But as I'm saying, there are actual cases where it's really been done. And, and Richard Salva, our, our guest tonight, he's going to be one of these people that's actually well-versed in, in what goes on. I mean, he's he's been into this for for over 30 years so uh, he's done the research he's had the education so when he comes at it he's coming at it from a you know a, a point of view of somebody who's educated not just making wild guesses as as some psychics might do because if you don't have any idea like you said you know some people kind of get those glimpses but if you don't have any idea and you just go into a cold well then you can believe whatever anybody's going to tell you and as i was saying before you know only so many people could have been abraham lincoln I mean, if, if Matt Costa and I and Matt Moniz, all three of us are all alive at the same time, it's not possible that all three of us could have been Abraham Lincoln, you know what I mean, at least in, in my terms. But maybe it's pieces of the essence. We'll get into all of that with Richard Salva because uh, he is not only going to tell us about reincarnation, he's also going to tell us about Abraham Lincoln and whether or not Lincoln was reincarnated in the later time as Charles Lindbergh, the famed aviator. This is going to be one of those uh, cases where somebody was a famous person in a past life and then became a famous person later on, and he's got a reason for that. Uh, he'll he'll explain to us the whole thing as to why, you know, these these two souls, uh, why they converged uh, in a later time. Because he is the author of Soul Journey from Lincoln to Lindbergh, revealing the mysteries of karma and rebirth. And of course, we'll take your calls. Uh, do you believe in reincarnation? Do you know who you were in a past life? You can give us a call at five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. 508-291-0500. We will take a break, and on the other side, we will be back with author Richard Salva here on Spooky South Coast.
Don't look now, but spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. If I was a bird and you was a fish, what would we do? I guess we'd wish for reincarnation, reincarnation. Wouldn't it be a sensation to come? To like reincarnation Is that from your private collection, Matt? It is. Wrote himself. Yeah, that's the great thing about he, He's better than Bob Dylan I mean, He's got a, a bigger record collection than Bob Dylan You never know what he's going to pull out Well, uh, we are talking about reincarnation tonight Not only the, the idea of reincarnation But the specific case of uh, Abraham Lincoln and Charles Lindbergh We will get into all of that with our guest tonight Author Richard Salva. He became interested in reincarnation and yoga philosophy in his teens when he moved to Ananda, a yoga community in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And for the next 30 years, he continued his studies under the guidance of Swami Kiriananda, a direct disciple of Paramansa Yogananda. I hope I pronounced that right. An author and minister, he has given hundreds of lectures on reincarnation, yoga philosophy, and history in the United States and Europe. And we're hoping he can enlighten us, no pun intended, on the subject of reincarnation tonight. How are you, Richard? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? Oh, excellent. Spooktacular, as we like to say. <laughs> now, how did you, I mean, you moved to, to Ananda, a yoga community in the Sierra, Sierra Nevada, uh, but did you move there because you were interested in this, or was it just kind of, you, you know, you ended up there and it drew you in? Well, it was a, it was a package deal. <laughs> I was interested in reincarnation, but I was also interested in yoga and meditation and things like that. And it all came together as a package. So at some point in your life, you know, you decided that yoga was a, a philosophy that you wanted to look into and study more. What drew you to it? Well, uh, I ran into a book called Autobiography of a Yogi. Uh, this is a famous, a pretty well-known spiritual classic in the New Age field uh, by Yogananda, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, many people have seen Yogananda's photograph because it's on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album, uh, and uh, he influenced the Beatles, Elvis Presley, and millions of people throughout the world. But uh, I read his book, and I became very deeply interested in yoga and meditation. And uh, as you mentioned, I ended up moving to a community in uh, California where uh, we teach and practice those things. And now, I think a lot of people don't quite grasp the idea of, of yoga as a philosophy. Uh, to a lot of Americans, it's simply just, you know, a meditative exercise. Yes, uh, that's right. It stretches. It's, it's more, it, they don't really know the whole, uh, the principles of the philosophy behind it. I mean, just in a nutshell, what is the yoga philosophy? Yes, yes. Well, what you're mentioning, uh, the, the yoga postures that people practice is a branch path off, off of the main path of yoga. And the central path of yoga was uh, uh, written down thousands of years ago by a great sage named Patanjali who lived in India thousands of years ago. And uh, he, uh, start, he wrote down what he called the um, Eightfold Path of Yoga. And it's basically uh, a, an objective way of viewing the spiritual search. Uh, these are um, universal spiritual principles that he wrote down, and basically he conducted the essential human experiment, that of discovering his own self. And uh, as he went through this process, he chronicled what happened to him and what he discovered. And uh, this is all uh, involved in the uh, Eightfold Science, Eightfold Path of Yoga and in his Yoga Sutras. And essentially one of the principles of yoga is to really just, you know, it's not... Uh 
centering on your body. I mean, you rise above your body and your corporal essence. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, that's why it's so deeply tied in with meditation. And also with reincarnation, with the idea of you're not going to be just stuck to one earthly shell. Yes, that's right. If you go very deeply in meditation, you'll start to realize that you're not your physical body, that you're the spirit that is much greater than that physical body. And so when you have that sense of detachment from this incarnation, from this physical body, even from this personality, because you realize you're much more even than your personality, uh, then you can realize, too, that you have also uh, lived in other bodies and other personalities. And, you know, we we talk about the paranormal here each week, and, and this is one of the themes that com- comes up quite a bit. There's, there's probably a lot of people that are listening to the show now that, you know, are used to hearing us talk about ghosts and hauntings, and they're saying, well, you know, reincarnation, I don't really buy into that. But isn't it the same thing that people are talking about when they're talking about ghosts and spirits that we're not tied into our body, that our energy, that our soul continues on in another form? Yes, yes, that's a very much an essential part of it. You know, when you're talking about reincarnation, you're talking about life after death. You can't have one without the other. You can have life after death without reincarnation, but, but the two are very intimately tied together. And um, again, just like you're saying, if you're talking about ghosts, if you're talking about spirits who are on this planet that aren't in their physical bodies, then uh, these are beings who, who are just manifesting on a subtler level of existence. Now, what's the deepest level of meditation you've been able to achieve? Have you been able to get to the point where you can, you know, leave your physical body and and be that that basic essence of yourself? Well, it's something that you experience inside. Whenever anybody really seriously practices meditation, after a while, it's just an understanding that comes to you that that the physical body is not the defining word on who and what you are, and that when you leave your physical body, you will still exist. It would just be like, as one uh, uh, great sage of India said, you're just like walking from one room in a house into another. But what ends up happening to many people when they start to meditate, and uh, this relates to our topic, is that they start to get these uh, flashbacks, memories, experiences, of past lives coming to them in meditation, and they, they feel there's connection with those lives. It isn't like you're seeing something that somebody else went through. It really is a sense it is something that you yourself have gone through. And that's one thing that we hear, uh, at least in, in Western philosophy, Western beliefs, you'll hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, I know who I was in a past life. or uh, And what they're essentially describing is, like you said, like scenes from a movie, somebody else's life, and it's not that first-person experience that you know somebody that uh practices yoga yoga philosophy might be able to achieve is is that ability to see it you know firsthand uh, experience it through your own eyes is that something that's unique to uh, the yoga approach well i do know some people who've had that experience spontaneously some of the people that you mentioned will talk about it in the third person but others will will say, you know, this is something that I remembered experiencing myself. I I uh, have a friend who uh, has written a book, and he um, has a memory of having been a Confederate general during the Civil War. And some of the amazing things about him is that he looks almost exactly like this man, but he went out onto the battlefields. And he had never studied yoga and meditation, but he went to into a state of spontaneous meditation. And sometimes this will happen to people when they come to some place, for instance, that they had been before and something very dramatic or traumatic happened there. 
uh, suddenly they'll be thrown back into a past life and they will remember that life. And he had that experience. But, uh, you know, I actually spoke with a woman who in on the West Coast who is a radio host. And she her show is like a, a rock talk show. And uh, she told me about an experience she had in Indiana where she was visiting a place where it was part of the Underground Railroad during the 1800s for slaves to be able to escape from slavery. And she was walking down into the basement of this house, into the oldest part of the house, the part that had been used as part of the Underground Railroad. And she said suddenly she had this strange sensation, and she looked down and she saw that she was wearing a very different outfit, or she had these boots that went up past her knees, and then she had this, like, uh, uh, petticoated, uh, skirt, uh, you know, hoop skirt, and she was looking down, and it was her wearing this, and there's this real strong sense of familiarity with it, and uh, it was more than just seeing somebody else, an image of somebody else going through something. This was uh, just seeing herself in a past life, just getting a flashback of that. And it's something that, you know, uh, it's a fine line to a lot of people. I mean, uh, some people might be geared towards saying, okay, I, I have this memory, it might be a past life, but a lot of people are going to, you know, seek psychiatric help when they don't need to. You know what I mean? It, it's just yeah. the way that our society is. We're not as accepting a, as as the idea of reincarnation as the Eastern philosophies are. Yes, yes, and, uh, um, and that's that's really quite, quite true, and uh, that's why it's so helpful for people to be talking about these things nowadays so that people can understand that there, there's much more to this than and the fact that, uh, you know, that you might think it might have been a dream and you had uh, the wrong kind of pizza that night or something. <laughs> it's, uh, there's, there's a lot to this. And uh, people who wonder about their, their sanity, you should know that a lot of other people have had these types of experiences and have explored them, uh, found deep healing through exploring them. And uh, it's really a, a, it can be a helpful thing for a person to, to go through for their spiritual growth. One person in particular that's a famous case is George Patton in France when he saw himself as one of the uh, leaders of the Roman Legion battling in the same area during World War II. Yes, yes, that's true. And Patton also had to, some people believe, uh, Patton referred to this a little bit obliquely, but he spoke about the possibility of having been in Napoleon's army as well. And uh, when he, you see that in the movie Patton where George C. Scott, this other scene where he's in North Africa and uh, he said, uh, there's a battlefield here and he's instructing the man where to go. And he said, no, the battlefield's this way. He goes, listen, son, I know where the battlefield is. And uh, he directs him to another part of that uh, area and he's standing there and he's, he's talking uh, with this wistful sound in his voice and this look in his eye. And he's saying, I remember when it happened here. I was here at this battle between the Romans and the Spartans. Well, I mean, what, what's the basic principle, the basic idea behind reincarnation? I mean, is it just that we have to continue on? Is it that if you're enlightened enough, you can continue on? Is it something that should happen to every soul? Well, uh, the thing that brings us back from incarnation to incarnation, there's several things that bring us back. One is this law of karma, which is the uh, corollary to the law of reincarnation. And the law of karma is such that whatever we put out has to come back to us. And it not always possible for that to happen in one lifetime. Uh, you know, we do a number of things right before we even leave our lives. Say we uh, spend a day doing, being very active in various ways, and then we're in a car accident, and there's no chance for that karma to return to us. That's just uh, one example of many thousands of things that we do throughout our lives where it's not possible for it to come back. 
But uh, the law of karma is the uh, spiritual counterpart to Newton's third law of motion, that uh, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And uh, since the universe itself is based on duality, this is just a part of the universe, that you know there's light and dark, north and south, and female and male, left and right, and uh, winter and summer. We have these polar opposites, and everything is balanced in the universe, and the same thing for us. Whenever we put out an action, it has to come back to us. So we have the law of karma that forces us to come back, because if our, all our karma is in balance, we need to return for it to do so. And uh, then we also have the, the law of desire, which is that for every desire you have, it either has to be fulfilled or it has to be transcended. And uh, so uh, if you have a desire for chocolate gelato, <laughs> you have to come back to the physical world. You have to be born in Italy or come here to the United States and get some haagen you know. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that you want on the physical plane, you know, if you really have that desire, it's a commitment of energy from your heart out to the physical world. And as I said, that, that, that energy commitment has to be either balanced either through fulfillment or through transcendence. So, so those are the things that bring us back into incarnation. But the, the whole purpose of reincarnation is out of spiritual growth. Uh, you might say that at the beginning of the reincarnation process, we start off acting like animals, and at the end of it, we act like angels. And it's this very long, slow process of evolution. In science, they talk about evolution in nature. They talk about how it takes thousands and even millions of years for these slow, gradual changes to take place. And it's the same thing for our egos, for our consciousness to change. Think of everything that you have to do in your life just to put bread on the table, just to get from one day to the next, you know, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. There's so many things that we just have to do. There isn't that much time for this soul evolution to happen, but every so often in our lives, we have those moments of epiphany where we suddenly understand something that we've wondered about, for, we feel like we've wondered about it forever, and suddenly we get this deep insight into a deep understanding. And, and when you have one of those moments, that's one of the reasons we were incarnated in that lifetime to experience. And then when you connect those moments together from incarnation to incarnation to incarnation, it creates an arc of spiritual evolution and of soul growth. And eventually, over time, our nature is refined down to our essence, which is spirit. Well, I mean, in the in the book uh, Soul Journey from Lincoln to Lindbergh, you do a great job in the beginning of giving people a primer as to the ideas behind reincarnation, and you talk about that soul growth, and you have some some charts as an example, and you know you have the idea of the ideal soul growth, which is like a straight line yeah. going across the graph, and then you have what most people's uh, growth chart looks like, which is kind of like spooky South Coast ratings, you know, <laughs> peaks and valleys up and down, and and. So it does seem like you know it, it is it's a learning process and and we say that you know we're here on this on this earth to to learn and and to to take some lessons out of it but you know if you it's almost like you know they say those who who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it and exactly. it seems like with this idea of reincarnation that's definitely true. Yes, yes, it's true because um you, you we all have free will. You know, we can we can learn uh, at our own rate of speed. Uh, and we can take as long as we want, and it's not recommended to do that because it's more painful that way. Because when we do, you know, we're talking about the law of karma. You know, you go up to somebody and you hit them on the shoulder, and, you know, if, if, if you get instant karma, the sort of thing that John Lennon 
sang about, but uh, it doesn't often happen in life that you would have somebody come up and punch you right away, right? And uh, but uh, if you keep doing things like that, then 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 you hurt yourself, you hurt other people. It takes a while for that sort of understanding to develop. And so, like you're saying, that that line on that graph of soul growth, it can go up and down. You might feel like you're really working on yourself, you know, really improving yourself, but you may have put out a lot of effort, and, you know, for one lifetime you feel like you just need to take a vacation from it all, you know. And uh, there's so many things that we can get involved in. We can become addicted to heroin, you know, for a lifetime or two, you know. There's there's so many things to get involved in in this, this physical plane, and it takes time. It takes time for us to gather these, this understanding. We can, uh, we can dabble in something for several lifetimes before we realize that it's, that it's not really, really what we want. And uh, until, for instance, you know, many people, you know, uh, people, everybody wants to. A lot of people, especially in this country, really want to become wealthy, which is, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to put energy out and to learn to grow through that. But so many people. You know, they find when they finally get wealthy, it's like that that interview with Howard Hughes when he was the richest man in the world, and somebody asked him on the radio, "Are you happy?" And the other voice said, "No, I can't say that I'm happy." You know, but it's 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 great when you first get it, but then you realize, well, then I'm still me, and who am I, and what is it all about? And then once you you start to get all these fulfillments, and you realize that there's something more to it. There's something more that. Uh, our spirits this this long for, and then you start to start to investigate the spiritual realm. Well, now the the one question I have to ask then is if we're if the idea is to keep moving forward and to keep growing spiritually as we move into each uh, each incarnation, why is it that it's so hard for us to remember the lessons that we might have learned in those past lives? Why do we have to uh, basically start from scratch and and hope that? There's something inside of us that keeps us from making those same mistakes again. Well, that's the great thing about reincarnation. You know, they say that the the um, that you can't take it with you. And there's a story about a rich man who went to a psychic, and he tried to find out who he would be in his next lifetime so he could will all his money to him. So, <laughs> and uh, you can't you can't really take it with you that way. But there's one thing that you t- do take with you. You do take with you the spiritual understanding that you develop. It's not like you have to start from scratch from each lifetime. If you gain a deep spiritual understanding having to do with anything anything that, that, that is very important to life, a real-life lesson, if you really learn that in any lifetime, then you bring that forward with you from lifetime to lifetime. It isn't that like you have to learn it again. You run into a situation that triggers it, and you just know it inside. You take a look at little children and... I can really relate to this because I have a small son, and uh, I just look at him and I look at his friends, and I just see, well, my son really understands certain things, and this other kid really understands certain things. They just, they just brought it with them, and they have a certain way of looking at the world already. Their, their personalities, who and what they are, and every parent who has spent quality time with their children knows this. Their personalities and who and what they are are already intact, and it's something that they brought forward with them and along with that comes comes these these uh this wisdom this understanding this this knowledge that we bring us from lifetime to lifetime is it possible that some of the souls that we encounter uh you know in these corporal bodies that we that we interact with that some of them are new souls just starting on the journey or is it every soul is you know in its umpteenth incarnation 
You know, uh, it's it's a mix. It really is. Uh, there's there's people who are just have uh, been around for a short period of time, and there's others who have been around for a really long period of time. And uh, uh, but the main thing for us uh, uh, ourselves is to just tune into what's important for us to tune into. You know, wherever we are, we want to move forward. Because I'd, I'd hate for some people to, you know, want to look into their past lives and, and, and do a little digging and find out that they don't really have one. You know, they're just starting on the journey, and then they say, oh, geez, you know, i got all this work ahead of me. Well, you know, uh, at least from the perspective of the teachings of yoga, if somebody is really interested in their past lives, it, it means that they're really trying to understand more about themselves. And it takes a certain uh, refinement of consciousness to have that sort of desire. Now, is it is it possible that once you are in tune with um, who you might have been in past lives, that you can uh, delve back into that and be able to more quickly learn some of these lessons that you you should have learned then? Or yes, you can utilize what you learned in past lives. Yes, yes. Often, uh, well, part of the reason that we'll have these flashbacks is because there's something happening right now in our lives right now that's connected with what we had experienced before, with what we learned before, with what we had done before. It may be something where we didn't quite finish uh, uh, our own sort of personal soul project, uh, you might say, uh, but uh, there's, there's a reason for it. Every time that we have that sort of flashback, every time we tune into a past life, there's something there to teach us, and it may be something that we need to be healed from. Uh, we talked about uh, this man who went to battlefields to experience past lives. I had an experience like that on the battlefield also in Europe. Uh, I went to a psychic who told me that I'd been at that battle, and uh, I thought, well, it would be interesting to go check it out. Uh, this was at the Battle of Hastings. So I went to the battlefield, and uh, I was with a friend, and we were walking along a stone wall. And we were just talking and joking. This is an old friend I hadn't seen in years. And we were having a great time, and suddenly my mood shifted like 180 degrees. I, I was having I was on such a high, and suddenly it sank down into the basement. And uh, I felt like that character in Little Abner with a cloud over his head. And I turned to my friend and I said, you know, I can barely speak right now. Would you mind if I went on the battlefield by myself? And he said, sure. So I went out, and uh, they have a walk that you can do. It's a guided walk where you can stand at certain places and see where the battle took place and say, okay, at this time of the day, if you look from this angle, you can see where this happened and so on and so forth. I just ignored all of that and walked into the very heart of the battlefield. And when I got there, um, I was just, I was so overwhelmed with, overcome with emotion that I just, uh, I just wept for about 45 minutes and uh, sat down there on the grass, and uh, it's now a sheep pasture, so I sat there as the sheep nudged me, and uh, I was looking out over where the battle took place, and I was seeing what I can only describe as a moving line drawing uh, superimposed over the landscape. I was here in the present, but I was also experiencing the past at the same time. And I saw soldiers uh, cutting at each other with swords and uh, horses rearing and shields going up and spears being thrust. And I saw somebody die before my eyes. And uh, as I said, I, I felt like I was releasing something that I'd been holding on to for a thousand years. And it was, it was, very, it was very deep and it was very moving and meaningful to me. And when it was over, I just felt this great sense of release and relief. And uh, 
so um, so when when we when we go into these past lives and we have these sort of, these sort of connections, uh, it really taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about life. It taught me a lot about death. And there's always a reason for it. Well, one of the things too is uh, one of the services you offer. If you go to Richard's website, uh, LincolnReincarnation.com or ChrisStarPress.com, and they're both linked up to our site, SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, if you go to your website, one of the services that you offer is you can uh, counsel people and how to find out who they were in past lives. And yes, actually, I don't do a, a psychic reading, but if somebody has is having experiences and they wonder what it's about, how to process them, how to if it's something something that needs healing, if it's something that you need to uh, help developing a deeper understanding about, then then I can help people who who are interested in that. And I can also help you. Uh, to tune into those past lives also, how, how to tune into them. Okay, well, why don't we take a break, and then uh, when we come back on the other side, Richard, we'll talk to you a little bit more about, you know, can, how people can tell who they were in a past life. I mean, what, what are the odds that we were all once uh, Cleopatra? Or, we were talking before you joined us about, you know, how it seems like when you hear about people going to psychics to find out who they were in a past life, they all come back as being, you know, Buddy Holly or, or Marilyn Monroe or, or somebody famous. Uh, hmm. So we'll, we'll talk a bit about that stuff uh, in just a minute here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. Uh, and we are talking to Richard Salva, who is the author of Soul Journey from Lincoln to Lindbergh, Revealing the Mysteries of Karma and Rebirth. And uh, we were talking about reincarnation and, and past lives. And w one of the questions that I had, Richard, is, is as I said before we went to the break, you know, it seems like uh, everybody that you hear, you know, oh, I went to a psychic and he told me who I was in a past life and, you know, I was Aristotle. Everybody's some somebody famous, uh, somebody of significance, and there's only so many famous souls to go around. Yes. Yes, and uh, it's true that if you go to psychics, they tend to say that you were somebody well-known. Uh, there was uh, Yogananda, again, my spiritual teacher, he, he talked to a few people who had gone to uh, this the same psychic, and he had told uh, each one of them that they were Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> and so she gathered all three women together and said, okay, well, the real Mary, Queen of Scots, please stand forward. But um, um, the what what I think what many psychics do is by mentioning a famous name, it helps us to tune into a certain part of history that we may have a connection with. Uh, if, we're, if we have a connection, say, with Tudor England, they might mention Queen Elizabeth or Shakespeare, you know, or if you, you know, uh, have a connection with biblical times, you know, they might mention some of the apostles or Christ or, or something like that. Um, it just helps us to tune into that time period. It's not necessarily so that we had lived that lifetime, but also, too, what it may help us to tune into is we may have had an experience similar to the experience uh, related in the history of the famous person that they're, they're talking about, and that by tuning into that person in their history, it uh, can help us understand more about ourselves, because so many people experience things that weren't written down later. You know, like you said, there are only so many people that are famous, especially since... 
civilization, Western civilization in particular, came through a dark age and uh, took. You know, there were so many things that went on that we have no idea now what exactly happened. Some of the things we're just guessing about. Um, but uh, there, there, people experienced things that were similar to, to things that the famous people go through. Just as now, we will read about Brad Pitt and uh, Angelina and all those people, mm-hmm. because if they go through something, they go through a heartache. It makes us understand more about ourselves and what we go through. If they lose a child or if they get, develop cancer or something, uh, it helps us to tune into ourselves better, to experience it vicariously, if you will. And... Uh, so, so this is uh, why I think uh, many many psychics will mention these these famous people and famous past lives. And there's another reason why we hear about those so much, and that is that those are often the things people are interested in. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's not so interesting to say that you were George, you know, Smith, and that you lived in uh, uh, some part of uh, Ireland, and you know, 200 years ago, and died during or whenever it was when they had the potato famine. You know, it just it's not that of that much interest to people, but when they uh, you have somebody who may have been somebody well known, then people are more interested. But but I just want to balance all of this by saying that those people who do regressions, the psychologists who who take people back uh, through hypnosis or through other means and uh, help people to remember their past lives, when when they they put all their figures together, they've discovered that. For people who are who are really having these past life memories and regressions and so on, that the the uh, that the numbers add up to about what they they are naturally. That there are only a certain number of people who live famous past lives, but by and large, most of them were farmers and, mm-hmm. and grocers and so on and so forth that you don't hear about. And if you have any questions for Richard Salva about reincarnation, you can give us a call five zero eight. Nine nine six zero five hundred or five zero eight two nine one zero five hundred. Now, is it kind of like a one soul, one body per incarnation type of rule, or is it possible that you know souls can converge and in, in, into one one entity? Is it is it possible that we can you know take bits and pieces of different souls to make a new person out of it, or is it kind of just you know one soul goes on one? You see what I mean? No, it it truly is one soul going on. It's a in each. Uh, each soul is an individualized spirit, Yogananda said, and we're all we're all unique, and we we maintain that uniqueness, and we carry that uniqueness with us throughout eternity, even when we merge back into the ocean of spirit, which is the end process of of reincarnation. But it is it's not uncommon for a lot of like souls who have found each other through time to to repeatedly find each other as they go along. Yes, yes, people of like mind, people who are just. Uh, uh, they have that term soulmate, which many people think uh, equates to finding romance and uh, having you know life partner that way. But there are many different levels of soulmates, and many of them are just people that uh, we uh, share a commonality of understanding, a common interest, and uh, just a deep friendship that we've formed uh, through many lifetimes. Now, how common is it to share physical traits and physical characteristics from from incarnation to incarnation? It's actually fairly common. Usually, there are some characteristics that are brought forward from one incarnation to another, uh, and there's a good reason for this. Well, you think of yourself as you're living this life that you're living now, and every time you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, 
and you see yourself, you see your face, you see your body, and you start to identify with that face and with that, with that physical body. And then you leave that lifetime and you float around in the astral world for a while. And then when it's your time, when your karma and your desires bring you back, uh, you come back to the planet and uh, come into a new body. But uh, as that body is being formed, uh, it, it, it originates. The, the first cells that are formed in the uh, mother's womb of a baby being born uh, are the cells that have to do with the uh, cerebral cortex in the medulla oblongata, and this is the base of the brain. And this is the center, as Yogananda said, of the ego. So as soon, uh, Yogananda said that uh, as soon as the moment of conception happens, that the soul enters the physical body and starts to, to form the body, and uh, it starts to form it, you know, it, it's the, you know the, the body changes a great deal in the first few years of life, but eventually the facial features and certain physical features are going to match what, what that soul recalls and remembers and identifies with as far as the physical body goes. So there will be these similarities, and it will be like uh, putting on a jacket over yourself. And it's one that's a little tight in places, and then you get used to it. But uh, that's what it's like putting on a new body. See, and now this might, this might be apropos of nothing, but in my life I've always – you know, when I've seen my reflection or photos of myself, I've never identified with the way I appear as being what my uh, conception is of my appearance. Is that due to anything to do with, uh, you know, past lives, or is that just, you know, we all just don't think we look the way we look the same way? The first time we hear ourselves on, on tape or on radio, we say, hey, I don't sound like that. <laughs> yeah, so many of us don't really understand what we look like or what we, we sound like, and it can be a strange thing uh um, some people don't look in the mirror very often. They don't look at themselves very much. Some people are very attached to how they look. Other people think that the physical body is a strange thing. And this, these various uh, approaches of looking at the body, they, they are things that we develop uh, from lifetime to lifetime. And, uh, but if you, as you start to grow spiritually, you start to see that the physical body isn't who and what you are. But even in spite of that, you tend to bring these characteristics with you. Now, one thing that uh, I read in the book is you mentioned the idea of uh, when people are leaving one incarnation and, and going onward, uh, that usually what you think about toward the end is, you know, what you can incarnate yourself as the next time. So if uh, the next time I say, you know, I, I want to be a lot thinner than I am right now, or a lot wealthier than I am right now, that in the next life that that may, may just happen. Yes, it depends because there's only so many wealthy families you can be born into if it's wealth that you want. Uh, but you, if you've been working on wealth in this lifetime, and especially like you're saying, the last thought that we have when we leave our physical body, it has a big impact on our next lifetime. And uh, so whatever you, uh, you know, that's why it's, it's important for people who are in hospital who are, who are near the end of their life, that uh, if we're near them that we, we give them positive thoughts, and uh, we surround them with, with positive thoughts and uh, say positive things around them. Another thing that Yogananda said was that the last uh, sense that we lose when we're leaving our physical body is a sense of hearing. And if somebody is uh, about to leave their body, but it's not really their time to go, and then standing there and the doctor says, well, that's it for them, they're, 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 it's a closed case, they're, they're about to die or something like that, they may leave their body, whereas... It may be still time for there may still be time for them to come back, uh, reinvigorate themselves, and come back into this lifetime. So uh, it's important 
that they hear positive things, that you say positive things around somebody who's who's uh, about to leave their body. We have a call. Oh, it dropped off. Well, uh, I have two questions uh, before because we are uh, coming up on the news uh, in a few minutes. But one question that I well, two questions that I have is one: Is there a waiting period to be reincarnated? I mean, is there a certain amount of time that we have to wait between incarnations? And two. Is it always another human being? Because you hear these stories of, you know, uh, I'm going to be reincarnated as a grasshopper. <laughs> yeah, some people wonder, you know, if there's just no rhyme or reason to it. If you can, well, as if you were perhaps uh, have a life as an artisan, and in your next life you're an artichoke, you know, you know, <laughs> you know. But uh, and no, there's it's 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 a directional thing. It's a uh, there's a directional flow to incarnation uh, of increasing uh, understanding, increasing consciousness. And uh, although some people doubt this at times because of the way that we can uh, behave toward each other, the human incarnation is higher than the animal. And uh, so it's, it's a process of uh, moving upward in, in consciousness and uh, gradual, slow growth. But um, uh, what was your first question again? Is there like a, a waiting period between incarnations? Oh, where, right, where right. Yeah, there's, there's, most people reincarnate fairly quickly. Uh, especially if they're interested in spiritual growth because they realize that there's a lot of lessons you can learn in this this uh, physical world that is harder to learn in the energy world of the astral plane. And so we want to come back. Uh, it's, it depends, again, on our karma and on our desires. Some people will hang out for a while. Uh, if you do something really wonderful for the human race, you may develop a really positive karma which may mean that you can spend a long time in a beautiful astral realm where there's light, color, mu- beautiful music, and uh, the sense of peace and joy in your heart. But you, you can only experience that for so long until that karma runs out, and then you have to come back to the physical plane. But uh, most people do incarnate fairly quickly, reincarnate. Uh, all right, why don't we take this call? We have about uh, five minutes left. So, Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Richard Selva. How are you doing? Hi, Tim. Hi. Hi, my name is Chris. Um... I have, I have a question. I want to know if birthmarks are any indication of how you died in the past life. That's a very good question. You know, there's a man named even Ian Stevenson, who's a professor. He just passed away a few years ago, so he might be around again. <laughs> he was a professor at the University of Virginia who did a lot of studies on this, and he found that there were uh, children in various parts of the world who remembered having been somebody else uh, who lived fairly close nearby, and he would do this research into those past lives and find out how they died. And through his research, he discovered and uh, learned that uh, quite a number of these children would have birthmarks uh, at places on their bodies uh, where they were wounded right before they left their previous incarnation. So it doesn't have to be that case, but... uh, you know, if you were in the Civil War, say, and uh, somebody uh, shot you in the, in the uh, um, you know, in the gut or something like that, you might come back with a with a birthmark there. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things do happen. Yes. Yes, I, I do. I have a small uh, red mark on my abdomen. Yeah. And I've been told through regression that I had been stabbed. Yeah. Uh, I was murdered in a past life, and I did receive a, a knife wound to the abdomen, and I do have a, a red mark on the back of my calf. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what caused that, but I also have an indentation on my right uh, side of my jaw. Yes. And I found out through regression that, uh, I mean, I've always had that, that I was kicked in the head by a horse I was shoeing. 
mm. as a stable boy or blacksmith. I don't, I'm not sure what the, the you know, what the profession was. Yeah. But uh, it, it does. I guess cell memory does, um, you know, manifest itself. Yes, yes, it's in our consciousness. And as we were talking about uh, the things that happen to us right before we leave our physical body, it, it makes a big impact on us. It's a, it's a key moment. It is this transition moment when you're leaving your body. Uh, there's a lot going on there, and it's a really high-energy moment. And uh, so the things that happen at that time, and if you are killed that way, uh, it's something that you'll carry with you in your subconscious just to the degree that there will be some sort of mark on your physical body in your next lifetime. I have a friend named Jeffrey Keene. I was talking about him, uh, the Confederate Civil War general, and he has little you know, things like dimples and uh, birthmarks and things like that in spots that uh, this Confederate general had been wounded, and it's really quite, quite an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Tim, do you have enough time to hear this story? Uh, sure, we got about three minutes. Three minutes. Okay, I'll try and talk fast. A um, couple years ago, I was um, in, in the movies, and I was watching the previews for the uh, new Mel Gibson movie, Apocalypto. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the scenes from, you know, uh, uh, the movie. And I'm, I'm starting to get really upset and tense, and I, I didn't know anything about the Mayan culture. I, you know, once in a while I'd watch history, and I'd see them fly over the temples and not think of anything of it. But uh, I did uh, start getting really, really bad. So um, I, I went, you know, uh, I went about my business, and then uh, about a year later I went through this life regression with this really well-known hypnotist. And uh, she regressed me back, and she told me that I was one of those people that the movie was about. Mm-hmm. She told me that I was um, sacrificed at the temple. I had my head chopped off. I had my heart torn out with that jagged knife by the priest, and um, and so, no sooner I had that done, and a week after that was uh, done with the regression, I had this horrific rash that appeared right in my chest, mm. this red raw rash, and I've never had anything like that happen before. So and and uh, I, I don't know what to make of it. Yes, does this sound a- some, like something that would have happened? Yes, yes, it sounds sounds like it's it's probably true. Uh, this these are the, the the aspects of reincarnation that we want to be careful with because there are memories. Uh, these some past life memories are worth recalling, and some are really uh, things that we would like to forget as soon as possible. Yeah. And uh, this sounds like one of them. Unfortunately, I, I know other people who have had these sort of uh, flashbacks too, having to do with the. Uh, Central or Northern South America and uh, mm-hmm. uh, similar experiences. Well, whenever I saw that movie, I mean, I finally did go see it, and I, I saw that, and I'm looking, and I'm seeing, I'm, I'm identifying with the jewelry, the um, tattoos, yes. uh, running through the jungle for my All life. All the details, yes. Yes, I mean, it was just like, I was like completely dumbfounded, but it was an experience, and I really believed I got a healing from it. Yes, yes, so these sort of things can happen when we watch these uh movies that are placed in uh, earlier times and, and mm-hmm. locations. And the timing couldn't have been better. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank Wonderful you. show Chris. tonight. We'll, we'll be right back after the news here on Spooky South Coast. An experience to live in fear, isn't it? me happening, man. This isn't happening. Spooky South
South Coast Hour Number Two. Tim Weisberg here, along with the Silent Assassin Matt Costa and Science Advisor Matt Moniz, and we are having a fascinating discussion with Richard Salva, author of Soul Journey from Lincoln to Lindbergh, revealing the mysteries of karma and rebirth. And he gave us kind of a primer on reincarnation and and the thoughts and philosophies behind it. And coming up in just a little bit, we will talk to him about the case of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, was his soul reincarnated as Charles Lindbergh? Uh, is he? Uh, still moving forward in his soul journey uh, today. So we will talk about that and more uh, coming up uh, in just a few minutes. But uh, first, we have some announcements we want to make you aware of. Uh, we talked about this last week, but just to remind everybody, Strange Entities of the World. Join Justin Smith, investigator for the Division of Cryptozoology for Capers, as he presents Strange Entities of the World. He will captivate you with his creepy crawler of a lecture. He'll talk about creatures of the supernatural, strange phantom beings, and entities of the unknown. He says that, quote, these creatures technically and scientifically should not exist, but people across the globe have reported seeing these things. You will hear stories of paranormal animals that have been seen throughout history. He'll introduce you to some of these creatures like phantom black dogs, the mad gasser, who is not Matt Costa, as previously thought, although... <laughs> He is a pretty mad guy. And many more. This lecture is multimedia, and audience participation is welcome. That'll be uh, next Friday, August 31st, at uh, Lecture Hall B of Cape Cod Community College from 7 to 9 p.m. The cost is free, but donations are always appreciated. Uh, so call Derek Bartlett at 508-224-7321 or email thesociety at capers.com if you have any more questions. And, of course, they're linked up to our MySpace, myspace.com slash Coast. As well, so if you want to check that out, Matt, you going? You're going to be there. I'll be there. I'll what about you, Matt Moniz? Are you going to try to attend? I will do everything I can to. I always like the Capers events. They always put on good stuff. They do, and and when you go, uh, it's very relaxed. It's very informal. The you know you can ask questions at any point if you're not sure about something. It's it's definitely the best opportunity you have locally here in this area uh, to go on a regular basis and get this kind of instruction for free. And there's free cookies. And the cookies, yes. You can't forget the ghost the cookies. cookies, too. Ghost yeah. cookies and, and uh, coffee with ghosts drawn on the on yep. the box. So that's uh, much appreciated. So uh, you might want to drop a couple bucks in the Capers bucket to thank them for the refreshments. And uh, another thing that we want to let you know about, uh, go to myspace.com slash scares that care. Scares that care is a not-for-profit benefit held once a year to provide money, toys, and other items to help sick children. Led by horror film director and retired police officer Joe Ripple, the benefit will utilize the fan base of the horror, haunt, and Halloween genres to raise funds and awareness for sick children in need. They plan to have a great time holding these benefits by showing films, having silent auctions, and maybe getting lucky enough to have a few celebrity appearances, but their success depends on you. Uh, their first benefit was a huge success. They raised uh, over $3,000 to help a uh, mentally challenged woman. 
Horror fans care just as much about children as anyone else, and they want to help. So if you know of anyone that would be willing to help by donating time, horror or movie-related items, or other support, have them get in touch. MySpace.com slash ScaresThatCare. They have been approved by Johns Hopkins Children's Cancer Center, and they have all that information on you know available to you if you want verification as to who they are and who they represent but they are accepting donations and uh, from anything from you know cash if you want to give them money to help uh, with, with what they're doing if you have some horror related merchandise you can donate uh, everybody out there that's listening to us that's involved in horror promotion horror events i know we have film directors that listen to us we have paranormal investigators that listen to us we have tv stars that listen to us try and give something to this cause to, to help what they're trying to do. And um, they're even looking for people to donate stamps for all the things that they have to mail out. So whatever you can do to help, myspace.com slash scares that care. It always seems kind of weird going into, you know, trying to help people and, and help do some good in the world and use our little bit of a forum here to help promote a good cause. And then to go to something like The Week and Weird. Because uh, basically all we do is crack on people for stupid decisions and, and yeah. dumb stories that come across. <laughs> but uh, it's time to do that. So uh, why don't we get into it? More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> The Week in Weird. And I think uh, you two guys are going to want to pay attention to our first story here. This, this might directly affect you. Your whole life might be changed after hearing this story. This comes from abcnews.com. By day, 28-year-old Scott Josephson is an educational software writer. By night, or during any of his free time for that matter, he is a Trekkie. In fact, Josephson's obsession with Star Trek has evolved to such a degree that he is now attempting to watch all the TV episodes from the original show all the way through Enterprise in chronological order, which is stupid because Enterprise comes before the first series, so we should have started with Enterprise. But I digress. Nerd alert! And he's talking about us, Maddie. <laughs> Star Trek is not the only thing on Joseph's, Josephson's mind, however, these days. He's also trying to get a girlfriend. <laughs> Good luck. I'm not doing the bar and club scene, he says, so it's not that easy for me to meet people. I've tried some dating sites with minimal success. I'm just not finding that person unique enough to date me. But fortunately for Josephson and his many Star Trek-loving, seeking lightsaber-wielding video game playing among us, the answer may now be just a mouse click away. It's SweetOnGeeks.com, a new dating site that encourages its members to embrace embrace the geek in all of us. SweetOnGeeks.com. There's soon to be a, a paid sponsor for Spooky South Coast, I think. We're hoping to create a bully-free zone where people can come and fly their geek flag as high as they want to, said Joyce Dales, who co-founded the website with her husband, Jeff. Instead of trying to hide their nerdiness, they can just celebrate it. The Dales, who met on another online dating website, launched SweetOnGeeks.com because they believed, even on the internet, the dating scene had become too image-conscious. In the years since SweetOnGeeks.com's debut, over 4,000 self-proclaimed geeks from over 60 different countries have signed up. Unlike Match.com, which is funded by users, SweetOnGeeks.com features ads for cloakmakers, paranormal investigators, and even a paranormal radio station. If a user wants to start an online chat with someone, the user can send winks or characters that include floppy disks, a unicorn, and if they're really special, a liger. <laughs> Matt Coster, what's a liger? Uh, it's pretty much my favorite animal. It's like a lion and a tiger mixed. 
Bedford's skills and magic. Members are even allowed to design their own profile. <laughs> God, everybody knows that. Members are even allowed to design their own profiles by changing the format to better suit their personality or create questions that pertain to their specific interests. Thus far, SweetOnGeeks.com cannot take credit for helping arrange any marriages. Big surprise. But it is certainly shaking things up on the geek dating scene. Since joining SweetOnGeeks.com, Josephson has struck up a dialogue with several women, one of which he is hoping to meet as soon as he returns from the Las Vegas Star Trek convention. I want to find my geek, he said. And in the end, isn't that what we all want? There you go. SweetOnGeeks.com. Check it out. I can only nice. imagine every profile is going to have hobbies include taking their bike out over sweet jumps. <laughs> and uh, they're, everybody's excellent with the bow staff. And it's also going to say, you know, under the list of, you know, f- likes and dislikes, favorite radio show, Spooky South Coast. Of course. Yes. So there you go. Well, geeks, what do you guys have for us? Matt Moniz, what do you have? From the Associated Press. Astronomers have stumbled upon a tremendous hole in the universe. It's called this show. The, the cosmic blank spot has no stray stars, no galaxies, no sucking black holes, not even a mysterious, not even the mysterious dark matter. It is one billion light years across of nothing. That's an expanse of nearly six billion trillion miles of emptiness, a University of Minnesota team announced Thursday. Astronomers have known for many years that there are patches in the universe where nobody's home. In fact, one such place is practically in a, in a neighborhood a mere two million light years away. But what the Minnesota team discovered using two different types of astronomical observations is a void that is far bigger than scientists ever imagined. The Minnesota astronomy professor Lawrence Rudnick explained examining the skies for a survey for the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, which essentially takes radio pictures of a broad expanse of the universe. But one area of the universe had radio pictures indicating that there was up to 45% less matter in that region. The rest of the matter that the radio pictures saw could be explained as stars and other cosmic structures between here and the void, which is about 5 to 10 billion light years away. Rudnick then checked observations of cosmic microwave background radiation and found a cold spot. The only examination, the only explanation, Rudnick said, is it's empty of matter. Holes in the universe probably occur when the gravity from areas with bigger mass pull matter from less dense areas. After three billion, uh, sorry, after 13 billion years, they are losing out on a battle where the larger concentrations of matter win over the small. So you want to go check it out? You want to go investigate that? Or is that too far out in the field for you? Yeah, it's a bit out there for me to go find nothing, which is like a lot of the other investigations I have been on. Well, now with this new report of this great nothing out there, uh, all the rock biters are running for cover, from what I understand. <laughs> I read about that on SweetOnGeeks.com. That's, that's on my profile. <laughs> the rock biterists. <laughs> I try you. Give me a name. All right. Uh, the never-ending week and weird. What do you have for us, Matt Costa? 
The story I uh, actually turned my head around for. I see that. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, if you lose game to, com- to a computer, you may bruise your ego. Lose an arm wrestling match to a Japanese arcade machine and you could break your arm. Distributor Atlas Company said Tuesday that it would remove all 150, quote, arm spirit arm wrestling machines from Japanese arcades after three players broke their arms grappling with the machine's mechanized appendage. An Atlas Company spokesperson said the machine isn't that strong, strong, much less so strong as a muscular man. Even a woman should be able to beat it. And is, re- and is calling the recall just a precaution. We think that maybe some players get overexcited and twist their arms in an unnatural way. The company was investigating the incidents and checking the machines for any signs of malfunction. Players of, of Arm Spirit advanced through 10 levels bat- battling a French maid, drunken martial arts master, and a chihuahua before reaching the final showdown with a professional wrestler. Gamers across the U.S. should not be worried because the particular this particular arcade machine is not distributed overseas. An, an arm wrestling video game that breaks your arm when you play it. Yeah. You know what that is. There's only one way to describe that. It's, a, it's over the top. Just hope these people don't start making slot machines for Vegas and start breaking your legs. Or... <laughs> I, I can think of worse. That's the, uh... Do you know what the character's name is? Sylvester Stallone's character? No. Lincoln. Uh... Lindbergh? Lincoln Lindbergh? That'd be Lindbergh. crazy. No, it was, uh... It wasn't Lincoln Charlie, was it? I know his first name is Lincoln. Lincoln Hawk. That's strange. That's weird, huh? Lincoln has been all in, uh, all over the place today. We'll, we'll get into that in a second when we come back from a commercial but that does it for the Week and Weird for this week if you have a Week and Weird story you'd like to pass along just go to the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com click on the Week and Weird thread there and drop the story in there and if we use it on the air we will not only give you credit we'll send you a fabulous Spooky South Coast bumper sticker limited edition so. it, it, it covers a nice rust spot it does or, or 20 rust spots alright we'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast Abraham Lincoln was President of the United States from 1861 to 1865. In 1927, a lanky young airmail pilot, Charles Lindbergh, captured the imagination of the world by attempting to fly alone straight across the Atlantic. Outstanding, outstanding. <laughs> the work of the silent assassin, Matt Costa. I, I, I like that. I, I saw, you know, I like the Lindbergh and the Lincoln cuts, and I was like, how is he going to bring them all together? And I thought it was fun. That was great. Anytime we can play the Patty Duke theme here on Spooky South Coast is a good one. Okay, time to get uh, serious again. Well, somewhat, somewhat serious here. And we will get back into the discussion now with Richard Selva, the author of Soul Journey from Lincoln to Lindbergh, revealing the mysteries of karma and rebirth. And we spent the first hour talking about uh, about uh, reincarnation and, and how it all happens and how it works. But now let's get into this one particular case, and that 
is the idea that Abraham Lincoln is actually a reincarnated yogi. Is that right, Richard? Yes, yes. This is something that was uh, said, a statement made by the great master of yoga that was mentioned in the earlier part of the program, Yogananda. He said that uh, Abraham Lincoln in a past life had been an advanced Himalayan yogi and that he was reborn as Charles Lindbergh. And w- did he say what he used to make that determination? Or? I think it was just something that he understood in, in meditation. Uh, when you develop yourself spiritually, you start to understand not only your own past lives. In fact, Yogananda said that when you achieve a state of enlightenment, one of the things that happens is that you're able to look back and see all your past lives just laid out before you. But what also happens is that you are able to tell other people's past lives as well uh, to become sort of like a super psychic, someone who can really tell you a great deal about yourself that way. And it seems like uh, in the process of putting together this book, uh, and it's done in a, in a very interesting style, instead of just coming at people with straight facts, you know, Lincoln did this, Lindbergh did this, you do it in kind of an anecdotal style, and, and you take these examples from their lives and, and show the similarities between them. Yes, in fact, um, I often joke with people that uh, one reason I believe in reincarnation is because my book went through so many incarnations while writing it. Uh, but at one point I had done more of an almost like a uh, historical or scientific treatise, and uh, I gave it to a friend of mine who recommended, she said, uh, just tell the story. So that's what people are interested in is the story. So as you were saying, what I do is I will tell a little anecdote or a little short story about from the life of Lincoln, and then I'll tell a little anecdote or story from the life of Lindbergh, and through the two you can see the, the many, many connections that were between them. I mean, the only downside to that is you lose the you know the footnotes and, and everything else that you would I mean, there's a lot of footnotes in the book, but you generally lose that you know, cited reference point to be able to say, okay, this really did happen. How much of how much of what you put in there as anecdotal stories is, you know, steeped in something that you found somewhere else, or just made, or, or how much of it is just an inference made from a fact of of one of their lives? Everything that's in the book is uh, based on their actual histories and things that they had wrote, written, or said. And, and it seems like uh, you went beyond just taking the writings of each, uh, but you actually went into the the works of some of their friends and contemporaries and, and what they said about them as well. Yes, yes, because I realized uh, very early on in the process of writing this book that if I were to try to discover these sort of uh, uh, similarities between the two men, I should probably start from the beginning of uh, this process, how it worked for me. Uh, I was on an airplane going to the East Coast, and I was in between writing projects. And as a minister and a yogi and a spiritual person, I thought I would... Uh, asked for guidance, so I just said a prayer, just asking for some sort of project to work on, and in less than a minute's time, the idea for this book came to me, and I just got very excited at the idea, because I realized here is a chance to really just sort of dive into reincarnation, because here are two men who were so famous, and whose lives have been so deeply scrutinized by historians and biographers, that uh, there's so much to know about them. And if there were connections between the two men, as Yogananda had said, then it should be possible to find it. And also at that time, I'd been teaching as well as practicing uh, the higher teachings of yoga that Himalayan yogis practice for more than 20 years. So I knew that I would find those connections as well. And when I started, I didn't know what I would find. I didn't know what would be there. I thought I'd find a few interesting connections. Mm -hmm. But I was overwhelmed by the quality and quantity 
of similarities I found between the two men. Between Abraham Lincoln and Charles Lindbergh, I ended up discovering uh, nearly 500 similarities and parallels between the two men and their lives. And between uh, Abraham Lincoln and the practice of yoga, more than 200 connections. And between Lindbergh and the practice of yoga, more than 100 connections. So there's just a tremendous amount there for me to, to tune into and, uh, and also to share. And, and having read the book, I, I can vouch, you know, these connections aren't, you know, Lincoln liked to wear black socks on Tuesdays and Lindbergh liked to wear black socks on Tuesdays. I mean, these are definitive moments and, and beliefs and thoughts in their lives that, that sync up uh, on the part of both men. Yes, it's not like they both like pizza, you mm. know, or they, <laughs> you know, they both had a teacher whose name was Mary. You know, oh, these things are like mental obsessions, physical habits, social habits, pretty much everything that defines an individual, uh, the things that we hang our, our hats on when we're trying to say, okay, this is what they're like, you can find a connection between Lincoln and Lindbergh. And Lincoln did not have a secretary named Lindbergh, and Lindbergh did not have a secretary named Lincoln. <laughs> so we can throw that argument out the window. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. And if you want to go to to Richard's website, LincolnReincarnation.com, there's some, some chapter previews of the book, and, and you can get some more information uh, about how to acquire the book, and also uh, some of the different e-books that he has that delves into the same topic. But one of the things that I've felt when I was reading the book, um, Abraham Lincoln is, is somebody who, uh, I mean, he's my most, uh, the, the most inspirational president in my eyes. I mean, I've always been fascinated with his life. Uh, and he's somebody who's become that mythological figure. You know, he's the, the constant do-gooder. And through your book and, and through the stories, and in the second part, when you make the um, allusions between him and the Himalayan yogis, you can see that you know this isn't really just mythology. He right. was this almost divine type of being, but at the same time, he had flaws and he did acknowledge them. Yes, yes, it's absolutely true. There, he, uh, there's a reason why he was called on a save, for instance, the fact that he was more truthful than most people would, would uh, expect themselves to be. By the way, you mentioned the book on the website. Let me just interject very quickly. Uh, that there is a special offer there on the website for people interested. If you get it through the website, um, you get a bonus gifts worth about $130, so you might want to check that out. But, um, yeah, Abraham Lincoln, we're not only dealing when we talk about this, and I've, uh, I've had to deal with this some while being on radio. I've been on about 40 different radio interviews so far. And a lot of people, I, when I talk to them, I realize they're not talking strictly about the historical Lincoln, uh, the personal Lincoln, but more about the mythological Lincoln, and sometimes it's hard to uh, connect with that because when you just take somebody and then you define their life in a certain way, uh, and you say this is who and what they are, it's a very usually a very brief definition. And then you have somebody else and you define their life a certain way, it's hard to see the connections. But if you go into their day by day uh, activities, their habits, uh, you know, the things that they did, the things that they said. And it's just amazing with the number of connections there were between them. And it's it's amazing to me the amount of historical information that's out there about Abraham Lincoln that's been, as he's been idealized, that's been kind of twisted and changed around, uh, right down to, you know, we're used to the, the, the Jason Robards type performance of, of Lincoln or, or some of these other actors where he's portrayed with that deep 
booming voice and in actuality you mentioned in your book and and i've i've heard in other books and other uh, television documentaries he actually had kind of a high-pitched voice especially when he got excited yes yes he almost uh, squeaked he just <laughs> in fact when he was giving the speech that really kind of propelled him to the presidency it was in uh, new york city there uh he uh, was he started giving the speech and he spoke with a midwestern twang and he was this very high-pitched tenor voice uh, there was this man in the audience who was from the newspaper, and uh, this reporter was thinking, you know, that might fly in the Midwest, but it's not going to work here. But by the end of the speech, he, along with everybody else, was on their feet applauding just because of uh, the energy that was coming through him. From what Yogananda said, you really get a sense that here was somebody who had a life mission mm -hmm. to live his life as Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Yogananda said that one reason he came back, having been a Himalayan yogi as Lincoln, was that he died with the, again, here we have this thing of a desire that you have in your deathbed. He died, died with the desire to help bring about racial equality. And he was able to do that to a large extent as Lincoln. In fact, you know, if you think of everybody in history and what they've been able to do that way for racial equality, he would have to be up near the top of the list. Absolutely. And what an inspiration he was to everybody else that helped further the cause as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's so many things about his life. One is that he's, it's a life that is easy to mythologize. It's a life that's easy to make into a legend because it's such a beautiful life and such an amazing life. And like Christ, it's a life that was cut short. And uh, so we, right at the very end of his great work, he was taken away from this world. And that's one reason that I believe, when I look at the life of Lindbergh, that he had to come back, because a lot of things that were due to Lincoln, the things that he, uh, just from the standpoint of karma, you know, having done so many wonderful things for America and for the world, and not really been, have been appreciated for it until toward the very end of his life, he was starting to be appreciated, and then he was cut down. As Sandberg said, you, you can't... Uh, measure a tree until it has been chopped down. It was the same thing for Lincoln. People didn't really appreciate him until he was gone, and then they said, oh, we were harboring an angel in our midst unawares. And when you talk about Lincoln's life, and, and when we look back to the Lincoln-Douglas debates and yes. the speeches he made toward the presidency and then the speeches that he made as president, we can see how he started to gain that, that uh, just that, I want to say almost that that godlike superhero-like quality to the American people, and then when he comes back as Lindbergh, Lindbergh can understand why people love him almost on sight when they have no idea who he is, or all yep. they know is that he flew across the Atlantic, and and they love him and they revere him, and it's almost like that karma that he developed as Lincoln carried through. Yes, absolutely. That Lindbergh reaped the karma that uh, Lincoln had uh, developed there, and you see that especially just like you were saying. You know, most people don't know that. Uh, uh, quite a number of people, like a dozen people or more, had already flown the Atlantic before Lindbergh did, but he was the first one to fly it solo, the first one to make such a long flight in an airplane, the first one to say, I'm going to start here and end there and pretty much make it almost exactly on time. Uh, this was pretty amazing, but still, he wasn't the first person to fly the Atlantic. And uh, so the reaction of people to him, the way that the world just went crazy about him, it doesn't make sense when you see what he did. Certainly what he did was heroic, but it didn't... When you, when you see the way that people just... They wrote poems about him. They named their children after him. They named, you know... Uh, they, they gave him money. Yes, they, they made gave him money. wealthy. 
They gave him what he needed, you know, to get by through the Depression. He was able to to ride that wave, you know, that most people suffered through. Uh, he, you see this great good karma coming to him, but it was more than that. It was just the emotion that he drew out of people. There were these tough radio announcers, you know, the kind of guys who do, you know, these sort of shows and make these, you know, really uh, tough quips and things like that. And they were covering Lindbergh when he was giving his speech under the Washington Monument. And Lindbergh's speech was very short, and at the end of it, and quite a number of people thought this. They said that was just like the Gettysburg Address, because it was so short, but it was so meaningful to them. And uh, this, this man who was stock and trade with these tough quips on the radio was weeping on air. And uh, just to give you another example, he made this. He was going uh, in an automobile in a parade through Manhattan along Broadway, and uh, there are people lined up along Broadway, covering him with confetti, you know, and cheering, and men throwing their hats in the air, and so on. And and there were other people. It was it was so popular that uh, they would people were were also crowded on the side streets off of Broadway, and some of them were several blocks away, and they could hear that Lindbergh was going by, but they didn't even see him. And some of those people were weeping. Now, this doesn't make sense when you think about what he did. You know, certainly it was heroic, but to bring that sort of emotional response, but when you equate it with the thought that this was Abraham Lincoln returned to the world, then it makes perfect sense. Well, in, in these days, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the book, The Plot Against America. Yes, I've, I haven't read it, but I, I know a little bit about it. Yeah. It seems, I mean, a lot of people, first of all, mistakenly believe that to be historical fiction, and it's it's kind of uh, quite the opposite. But people look at Lindbergh and what he did politically uh, with the America First Committee, and uh, he's seen by some as being a Nazi sympathizer and a bigamist. And so it's kind of odd to a lot of people to make that correlation that he would have the reincarnated soul of Lincoln, but you do... A, a great job in the book of presenting, you know, Lindbergh's point of view as to why he had these beliefs. And when you're working from the insight of the idea of the Himalayan yogi and Abraham Lincoln, it gives you that perspective into Lindbergh and, and his activities. Yes, absolutely. It was a. Um, you have to take a look at uh, Abraham Lincoln's personal experience of the Civil War. Uh, we're not talking here about the major decisions that he made or, you know, who, which general he put in charge at different times or anything like that, but his own personal experience of the war, uh, the fact that so many of his friends he had to send out into combat only to see them hear that they were killed, uh, the fact that uh, he was a man of great personal nonviolence in his life. Uh, he Even as a young man, he wrote a tract against cruelty to animals, you know, he was—he really manifested the nonviolence that's so famous, that Gandhi made famous, that is so prevalent among yogis in India. Just one of the many examples of the spiritual qualities that he shared with Himalayan yogis. But uh, this this natural, innate nonviolence to have to be the one to promote a war, and it was one of the most bloody conflicts in the history of humankind. Uh, it was, there were 600 million casualties. Or I'm sorry, 600 million, 600,000. I'm sorry, <laughs> a little bit of hyperbole there. But um, uh, 600,000 casualties through that war. Uh, for quite a long period of time, more people died, Americans died in the Civil War than all the other wars put together. That was only uh, surpassed recently. But uh, it was such a such a tremendous thing, and and for quite a while, it was uh, personally so painful to Lincoln to have to read these telegrams. 
saying that in, at Antietam, Antietam, this had happened, at Shiloh, these many people were killed. Uh, he got to a point where he could hardly stand to think of another soldier under himself as commander-in-chief dying. And he would re- send these reprieves to soldiers who were scheduled to be executed whenever he can think of any excuse to do so. He would send these telegrams. One of his worst experiences came when two women who were relatives of this young man who was sentenced to be scheduled to be executed uh, were at his side, and he sent a telegram to send a reprieve of execution, and then received a return telegram, which he had to read to these women, saying that, unfortunately, the execution had already been carried out. But uh, he, would, he would talk to people. Uh, people described him who saw him in the White House and just described it, how painful it was for him and how he had these these shadows under his eyes, and he had such a look of woe about him. He said that would that would uh, touch the heart even of his worst enemy. And uh, he, somebody said, you know, I I hope I'll see you in heaven. And he felt so so much pain for all the weeping widows in the country that he said, you know, I many times I wonder if I will ever get there. And he used to recite to himself from uh, one of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, was it King Lear about a a king who whose personal ambition had uh, brought so much destruction and sent him into a state of madness. And he used to recite that, that, uh, uh, one of the soliloquies that had to do with that subject to himself while he was in the White House. So it was a very personally difficult experience, and he was so glad when the war was coming to an end. He, Lincoln was killed within about a week's time, of Lee's surrender at Appomattox. So there are still soldiers dying in the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And when, when you have an experience like this, when you are forced by circumstances beyond your control because a greater law was at work, which was, this was, this was a very righteous war to, to end slavery, which was what, you know, the end result, whether people fought for that or not, that was the end result of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a wonderful thing and a very important thing to do. But it was personally a, like a daily crucifixion for Lincoln's spirit. And you see this when you read these, these testimonies of people who knew him and wrote about what he, what he said and what he felt and what he experienced in that. And then for him to die so soon toward the end of the war and toward the end of his life, you know, in the second inaugural address, he spoke about bringing the country together again in, in peace and in harmony and this this vision of healing for the whole country, you know, it was, just, it was just such a beautiful thing. And he spoke about it again on the last day of his life. So we were speaking earlier about how our thoughts on our deathbed can impact our next lifetime. And then you have Charles Lindbergh, who becomes, he flies the Atlantic, and he becomes so famous. And everybody watches everything that he does and he says, and he knows that he has this influence, this, this ability to influence people. And then he sees us starting to to move closer and closer toward involvement in this war in Europe. And the more he looks at it, the more he starts to get nervous, and he starts to feel the sense of this can be a catastrophe. You know, the Civil War that Lincoln experienced, many of the generals thought it would be over within a few months, you know. The North had more men, they had more mechanical, you know, they had more factories, you know, they could put out more guns or whatever like that. They They didn't... they didn't uh, know that they were going to run into a Robert E. Lee and some of these other generals that would just make it last for four or five years. And so uh, Lincoln's understanding of what it means 
for a war like that of such catastrophic proportions to be involved in it and what it could do to a country. I mean, America was torn apart. And uh, just to think, you know, he was invited by the Germans to go uh, to visit them. And uh, he, this invitation came through the American diplomatic corps. So actually what Lindbergh did was he went to Germany to spy on the Germans mm-hmm. for, for us, for America. And uh, when he saw the, the, the gunships that they were creating and, you know, everything that they were doing as far as aviation was, he was really impressed by what they could do. But he was just, you know, you can imagine his subconscious the sort of images that were coming into his mind. For Lincoln, you know, he, he, was, uh, he saw many of the new inventions for war right off the drafting table as commander-in-chief, and he okayed many of them. And uh, there was great slaughter in the Civil War because many of the tactics weren't keeping up with the inventions. And so these, these guns would have a longer range, and then they would be doing these marches right into them, and these men would just be cut to pieces. And uh, so Lindbergh was, was seeing this, this uh, uh, Germany was developing this war machine, and it was like the pinnacle at that time of what people can do. And you can imagine what, how his subconscious was reaction. Well, what he, you could see how it reacted by what he did. He started to talk against America being involved in this war. He said, this is going to be a catastrophe. We have no idea what's going to happen from this. This could be one of the greatest you know, uh, cataclysms that would face our civilization for us to get involved with this thing. We should try to avoid it by any means possible. And the thing about it was that most people in America at that time agreed with him. He was representing the majority of Americans in their viewpoint. They'd had World War One just a generation earlier. They didn't want to get involved in, involved in another war in Europe. And Lindbergh was sort of, he was a poster boy for everybody who, who believed that way. And uh, but then, you know, when we were uh, attacked at Pearl Harbor, Lindbergh did an immediate about face because he knew, well, now we're attacked. Every, every discussion is really mute. Mood, I mean. And, and he and, got the uh, opportunity to do what Lincoln never could do, which was actually go out into the battles. Yes, and yes, and Lincoln spoke about that. He said he wished many a time that he could take change places with one of the soldiers sleeping along the Potomac. He said he would really love to be able to leave the office instead of having to tell other men to, to risk their lives for the country for him to risk his own life himself. But he'd had that falling up. Lindbergh had had that falling out with the FDR, and Lindbergh wanted so badly to be involved in the war. And uh, finally, you know, it's interesting because we talk about karma and how it comes back. Sometimes it comes back very exactly and very in a real way that you can see it. And you can see it in the lives of Lincoln and Lindbergh because Lincoln gave many generals or a number of generals during the Civil War, he gave them a second chance. If they made a mistake or they did something that was questionable, sometimes he would say, well, they'll learn from that lesson and we'll just stick with them. And uh, so he had this good karma with the generals in wartime. And so as Lindbergh, certain generals made it possible, going against FDR's orders, for Lindbergh to be involved in the war in the Pacific. So he went on 50 flying missions there, even though he wasn't supposed to do any of that. And he was able to, to risk his life for the country, as he so badly wanted to do, and which he wrote about with so much feeling. Now, uh, we're going to have to take a break in a second, but I just want to ask you one question, and it may be a little bit too subjective, um, but doing all the research that you've had done and considering the, uh, the mythology and the, and the status that Abraham Lincoln has acquired, 
would you see the life of Lindbergh as another step up in that soul journey of Abraham Lincoln, or was it more of a step down? Uh, how would you relate it to his uh, soul's progression of growth? Yes, that's a very, very good question. We're talking again about three lifetimes here, not just Lincoln and Lindbergh, but Yogananda mentioned the Himalayan yogi past life. And you can see in the life of Lincoln how his spiritual strength, which he needed to help hold the country together during the Civil War, for example, could have been developed from a life of deep prayer and meditation in the lonely Himalayas. And, uh, you know, just as the spiritual uh, growth that he had experienced, it sort of lifted his spirit so that he could have that soaring lifetime that was so visible to all the world. You know, you have uh, these hermits who do these, uh, they're great spiritual supermen, but we don't hear about them. But if they have the karma in a future lifetime to manifest what they had developed in that previous lifetime, that's what we see in the life of Lincoln. But during Lincoln's life, he didn't work on himself spiritually. He he certainly prayed at times, especially during wartime, and, uh, but he didn't uh, take on any spiritual discipline, which is necessary for continued growth. So he was sort of riding on the wings of what he had developed uh, in that Himalayan lifetime. And then you see it starting to dip a little in the life of uh, Charles Lindbergh. For instance, you mentioned him having been uh, a bigamist. Uh, for for uh, Abraham Lincoln was completely faithful to, to his wife, but Lindbergh uh, dabbled a little bit, went outside the box there. And, uh, you know, doing something like that, uh, it's... Uh, uh, is usually a sign of somebody who isn't as advanced as somebody who can, uh, you know, just stay stay with one person that way. All right, well, we have to take our final break of the night. And we When we come back, we will wrap things up with Richard Salva, author of Soul Journey, From Lincoln to Lindbergh, Revealing the Mysteries of Karma and Rebirth. If you'd like to check out the book or learn a little bit more, you can go to com or lincolnreincarnation.com, and both are linked up uh, on the blog at spookysouthcoast.com. We'll be right back in two minutes here on Spooky South Coast. Hello. Hey, man. You up? No. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. Hey, come on. It's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Uh, we got about five or six minutes left in the show. But, uh, Richard, one thing I do want to touch on is the, the paranormal connections between Lincoln and Lindbergh, since uh, that's, that's our bread and butter here at Spooky South Coast. And Matt Moniz actually has a question regarding that. Yes. Yeah. My question being that um, in the White House, and these are documented cases, Lincoln's ghost was seen by several presidents, uh, you know, while Lindbergh was alive at that time. How yes. how do you rationalize that? Yes, uh, the the human spirit expands far beyond the uh, the physical body. Uh, one physical incarnation, uh, our souls. Uh, it's like you could see our our spirit as it surrounds our bodies. It's so much greater than that. Uh, People have often had uh, things like Carillion photography where they could see the aura of the body, uh, but the spirit is even even much greater than that. And it's our souls know things on a very deep level that uh, we're not aware of consciously. And it is possible when you have a certain incarnation for part of your spirit to get 
uh, be attached to that that particular part of the planet or that particular building and so on, and even to such a degree that people may see uh, see your your former incarnation to some extent. And so um, when I read those stories, I I had that same question, but when I meditated on it, I realized that this is the answer. I have a friend who's very... uh, uh, deeply involved in these these sort of teachings and meditation and so on. And he went to the funeral of another friend of his that he uh, had uh, been very close to, who was also involved in these teachings. And uh, he said during this, the ceremony, he felt this man's spirit. And he realized that uh, the, the person that he remembered, the sense of humor, the way that he would tell jokes, the way that he would interact with him and so on, that the spirit that he felt was just, this, uh, it just transcended so much. Uh, everything that he had expressed through his personality was so much more than that. And uh, so it's possible for our consciousness to be in several places at once, even <laughs> you know, while we're riding to work. We can be thinking about what we were doing the night before and so on. Mm-hmm. And our subconscious is so much in there that it's, it's possible for this sort of uh, manifestation to take place. And, of course, uh, both men, uh, as, as you describe in the book, both men, we all know Lincoln's paranormal history. I mean, it's it's been documented that uh, his wife had been involved in, in some seances in the White House and that he'd been present when they went on. But uh, he also had a, a prophetic dream about his own death. And, and Link, uh, Lindbergh had dreams where he spoke to his father after his father's death. Uh, is that just another, is that? Just a, a symbol of their enlightenment in their in their soul's progression that they were able to reach that plane uh, above uh, the the physical realm that they were able to you know have those type of dreams. Well, we were talking earlier about the teachings of Patanjali, who's a great master of yoga in ancient times, and he said that whenever you perfect a spiritual quality, a spiritual trait, that there's a certain spiritual ability that comes with it or power. And he said when you perfect the ability of introspection, when you're really able to understand yourself on a deep level, that he said when you perfect that that quality, that you develop the ability to receive information from higher spheres, is how he put it. And we see in the life of uh, Abraham Lincoln that uh, he spoke to other men in his cabinet about talking with his son Willie, his favorite son Willie, after he had died. He said he would they would come to him in dreams. And he said, uh, I know, I knew even then while I was talking to him that he was dead, but still it was like he had never gone anywhere, and he was more real than he was in real life. And uh, Charles Lindbergh had the same sort of experience with his dad. Uh, this is an, this ability to connect with, with those that have moved on is, is an ability that comes to us as we grow spiritually. All right, well, Richard, we thank you for joining us tonight and for enlightening us uh, both on reincarnation and the particular case of of Abraham Lincoln and and Charles Lundberg. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Anytime. And if anybody would like to get the book, we highly recommend it. You can go to ChrisStarPress.com, LincolnReincarnation.com. Even if it's not something that you've read up a lot about, it's it's a good primer. It gives you a lot of the information uh, and a lot of the background. So check that out. And, of course, they can go to your website also for, for your past life consultation services and which is included in that package I saw. Yes, yes, we, we include one uh, consultation. That's correct. All right, so check that out at com and LincolnReincarnation.com. All right, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye. 
And next week we will be back. We will talk to author John Kachuba, author of Ghost Hunters, On the Trail of Mediums, Dowsers, Spirit Seekers, and Other Investigators of America's Paranormal World. Uh, we'll be on right after the Red Sox whenever they get done, hopefully not too late, uh, because we will have a lot to talk about with John Kachuba. And, of course, stay up to date with everything Spooky South Coast all week long by visiting our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, or our MySpace, MySpace.com slash SpookySouthCoast. So for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernaturalist.